Hello, this is the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. If you like this series, you can subscribe on iTunes and please like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. There I post extra material, videos, and other things you might find interesting about European history. Today, uh, also if you have any questions you can, or corrections, you can always email me at the European History Podcast at gmail.com. Okay, today we're going to cover a lot of topics and they all fall into the category of discussing the culture of classical Greece and the Peloponnesian Wars. We'll talk about the first Peloponnesian War and then the, the great one that ended in the fall of Athens. So today I want to cover the following topics. We're going to talk about the Delian League, we're going to talk about the rise of Samon, we're going to talk about the 30-year peace and the breach with Sparta, and how Greece becomes divided between these two dominant powers between the Spartans and the Athenians with their respective alliances, which are known for with the Spartans, the Peloponnesian League, and with the Athenians, the Delian League. We're going to talk about classical Greece, uh, the Athenian Empire, the unprecedented democracy and free society of Athens for males, regardless of class. We're going to talk about the ironic and less free role of women and slaves in Athenian society, their legal status, their everyday life. We'll talk about slavery in Athens and greater Greece and religion and public life. I want us to go ahead and cover also finally the Great Peloponnesian War. We're going to talk about uh, what, why it happened, uh, how it uh, went, and how it ended up with the Athenian Empire and the city-state of Athens itself really kind of falling. So we've got a lot to cover. I'm going to get started right away. So almost immediately after the defeat of the Persian War, which is the last episode I discussed, the Greek world of city-states, fiercely independent, very competitive, not very affectionate to each other, the Greek world split again into two general spheres of influence, uh, Athens and Sparta. They had a meeting at Delos after the Persians were defeated. In the year 478 BCE, the island city-states in the Aegean Sea and Asia Minor, after the Persians had withdrawn, they met with the Athenians and they swore an oath of alliance on the, uh, the important place of Delos. And when they, they swore that they would work together for mutual defense and to defeat the Persians and to make sure the Persians never come back to try and take over any Greek city-state. And to show how serious this was, they threw pieces of iron, lumps of iron, into the Aegean Sea and said that the alliance was going to last until those lumps of iron rose to the surface of the water. So forever the alliance is supposed to be. And they named this the Delian League. And their goals were to basically free more Greek city-states from Persian control and to obtain compensation from Persia. There was a great assembly uh, for the League in which all city-states had one vote, but it was pretty, very clear from the start that Athens was going to play the dominant role, and it was intended and accepted that Athens was going to lead the way in this organization. And it was very successful. The, per the Persians were driven out of Europe. They were driven out of the Aegean Sea. Uh, in some 
and in the meantime, some cities, Greek city-states, were forced to join the Delian League, or they were forced to remain in the League. They weren't allowed to leave. And most members of the League early on, they accepted this kind of coercion because it was seen as necessary for the security of the Aegean Sea, is, is seen as necessary for the security of all of them. Uh, after the Delian League is formed, we see the rise of Saman. He was the son of uh, Miltiades, the, the hero of the Battle of Marathon. So Saman is a very important Athenian historical figure. He, he rises in Athens, and he, he is leading the Athenian political establishment for two decades. He is very aggressive in attacking Persia and making sure Persia is on its back heels. Uh, and on the defense, and he encourages a very friendly relationship with Sparta. So he wants peace among the Greeks, and he wants to really uh, go after the, the, per the Persians. Also, Saman, he accepted the more kind of conservative version of the Constitution of Athens and the democratic ideas of Cleisthenes, and it's very successful. Saman has a very successful political career. He gets victory after military victory against the Persians. So in that context, we see the rise and the beginning of the first Peloponnesian War. This is the military conflicts between the Spartans and the Athenians and their allies. So in 465 BCE, the island of Thasos rebelled uh, from the League. And this was the first time that the Athenians basically used the Delian League for their own interests only. And so this island city-state is, is forced, is put down by Athens. Saman, when he gets home, though, from putting down this rebellion, he's accused of taking bribes by his political opponents. And he's found not guilty, but it's really mostly just a kind of kind of reduce Saman's kind of political power by his rivals in Athens. So he's attacked by his rivals, including this young person who was given the job of trying to prosecute him, and that young man was Pericles, and he's going to be the next major Athenian leader. Pericles, he wanted to challenge, uh, he wanted to challenge Spartan domination. He didn't like that Saman was trying to be friendly and passive with Spartans. He wanted to challenge the Spartan domination of the Greek world. So the uh, Thasians, the city-state that tried to rebel from the Delian League, the League of Athens, the Thasians asked Sparta to invade Athens, and Sparta agreed to invade Athens. But an earthquake happened, and the Spartan state slaves, the Helot population, revolted uh, at the same time. And so it turns out that Sparta ends up being in kind of a desperate situation, and they ask for help from the Athenians when they are about to invade them. So they get help from Athens. And while Saman is gone to Sparta to help them, the, his political enemies at home in Athens strip most of the political powers away from the Areopagus, and the Spartans actually ended up sending them the Athenians home back home anyway, because they're worried about Athenians encouraging these kind of weird political ideas and rebellions. So Pericles comes to a head at, as the leader of the demo, more democratic faction that uh, Saman doesn't really represent.
In the year 461 BCE, Saman gets ostracized. He gets back from Sparta. He gets ostracized. Athens allies becomes allies with the with Argos, which is an enemy of Sparta, and the policies Saman's policies are overturned uh, overnight, basically. So it's kind of a dramatic. In 461 BCE, Saman, after these two decades of military victory and political popularity, his policies of being against Persia and friendly with Sparta kind of get overturned, along with a lot of local Athenian democratic things. So a border dispute uh, between the city-state of Megara and the city-state of Corinth uh, occurs, and the Corinthians, they leave the Delian League because they didn't like how it came out, and Megara, the city-state of Megara, got a better deal. Sparta resents the fact that Megara has defected, and Megara joins the, becomes allied with the Athenians, and therefore we get a war. The Athenians conquer two territories uh, in towards the area of Sparta, and they have a dominance over the sea. So it doesn't seem that the Athenians have a very good uh, situation position here against the Spartans, as strong as the Spartans were. And the tables are going to turn on Athens. In 455 BCE, the Athenian fleet was destroyed when it was trying to help Egypt in one of its rebellions against the Persian Empire. The Athenians, they lost ships, they lost power, and whenever you see that loss of prestige, there was more rebellion in the Delian League, and the wars against Persia had to come to an end. In 446 BCE, so nine years later, there were rebellions in Megara, and an invasion by Sparta led Pericles to just negotiate. Pericles becomes the leader of Athens. Sparta is moving in. Pericles doesn't want to fight the Spartans. So he negotiates a peace, and it's supposed to be a 30-year peace treaty. And the terms of this treaty between the Athenians and the Spartans is that the Athenians with Pericles, they agree to abandon all of the mainland Greece except for the Attica territory, which that is kind of like the, the territory where Athens is, kind of like the county where the city-state of Athens is located. And Sparta officially recognizes the Athenian Empire, which is a kind of referencing the Delian League, really. But and Sparta is kind of the dominant basically leader of the Greek mainland. And Athens is basically controlling the Attica territory on the mainland and the Aegean city-states, the island city-states. So that was the first Peloponnesian War. It ended without any uh, decisive winner, and there's a 30-year peace treaty where Athens gives up kind of influence over the mainland, and Sparta recognizes that Athens kind of runs the Aegean Sea. Now let's talk about just classical Greek culture, Greek politics, and religion in general, social things, etc. So in classical Greece, the Delian treasury was moved to Athens after the Peloponnesian War. The Delian treasury gets moved to Athens itself, and Athens starts keeping a one-sixth of the revenues just for themselves. But at the same time, the Delian League city-states are wondering why they should pay anymore when the Persians were not at war with the Persians anymore. 
So Athens calls for a Pan-Hellenic Congress to talk about rebuilding the religious temples throughout the Greek world. Sparta decides not to show up, though, and Athens starts this propaganda campaign, which basically starts to try to just push the idea that the members, quote-unquote, of the Delian League are not city-states anymore, and they're just going to be colonies, and the mother city is going to be Athens, and everyone's going to get along. So now, now you see this transformation here between this military alliance towards an empire where you have a ruling city-state and you have colonies that have to pay tribute now. So this idea of Athens being in charge officially now, it is popular among Democrat-supporting politicians, democracy-supporting politicians, and lower classes who obviously they feel more vulnerable and they want security. But otherwise, in the broader uh, Greek society and the Aegean Sea, it's seen as a tyranny. But Athens views this empire and the financial resources of it as simply, it's just necessary for Athens' safety, and so they are committed to maintaining it. In classical Greece, we really have to talk about changes in Athenian democracy, and it is an irony. There's, there's two ironies going on in this history. So the first irony is that Athenian democracy at home expands to create the freest society the world had seen, for at least for some members at least. And at the same time, the Athenians are kind of subjugating city-states uh, explicitly as colonies for the first time. So Athenian democracy, to go through with this irony, the hoplite soldiers became eligible for the very powerful offices of the archonship. No one was prevented from serving uh, in offices based on class. They began paying people to serve as members of a jury, and this allows poor people to be able to leave whatever their work is to influence the government and the legal systems. Circuit judges are brought back, which increases impartiality of judicial activity, even in the countryside, in the poor areas. And citizenship is made more valuable, and it is made more valuable in a counterintuitive way. And it strengthens the democracy, but it makes citizenship more valuable by making a new requirement that you can't be a citizen unless both of your parents were citizens. So it does make fewer people eligible for citizenship and the benefits of being a citizen, but at the same time, it strengthens the Athenian government. It, it strengthens the institutions by making the institution of citizenship itself more valued by everyone. And so we see that other change in Athenian democracy. The democracy becomes more empowered in the sense that a popular assembly had to approve every decision by the state and also in the judicial system, every judicial decision, every trial, was subject to be appealed to a higher court that would just be no, a, a, basically a court of no fewer than 51 citizens chosen at random. So you see this radical direct democracy could be accessed no matter what was going on in the government of Athens. You could always appeal to 
the the intervention of the citizenry itself. Most government offices were not necessarily elections. They were simply chosen by random lottery. So like today, if you get called for jury duty, you're just chosen at random. You could get chosen just at random to serve in a particular government position. The leading generals, the ten leading generals who had military and political power, they usually were chosen from among the upper class, but the assembly of Athens was free to choose anyone they wanted. They just tended to keep those positions for the upper class, but they were free to choose anyone. Any public office holder could be removed from office during their term, and at the end of their terms, all public office holders had to face this examination and financial accounting at the end of their term. Finally, in Athenian democracy, under the leadership of Pericles, there was no standing army, there was no police force, and so there was no use of violent coercion against Greek citizens. So you don't have the use of force in the Athenian territory, city-state itself. Pericles, with this leadership, he was elected 15 years in a row, not because he was coercive, but he was seen as very persuasive, He's very popular, he was a good military leader, and he was seen as incorruptible. And so he gets this great term of leadership, but he was deposed in the end. When people felt like they lost confidence in his ability to lead, he was deposed. And his experience of those, the defeat at Egypt when, he, when the Athenian fleet was used to try and help the Egyptians get away from the Persian Empire, that defeat made Pericles much more of a conservative kind of mindset. And what I mean by that is his goals became to simply maintain the status quo, to maintain stability, uh, maintain order, uh, keep the peace with Sparta, and pre simply preserve the Aegean Empire. So he, he's not aggressive. He doesn't have an aggressive or ambitious agenda. He views his role as the leader of Athens as a caretaker, um, a nurturer of the society as it is. Next thing we should have to discuss, discuss is the second irony. Remember, the first irony is that Athens subjugates all these other city-states in the Delian League while they are expanding democratic freedoms at home. The second irony there in this conversation will be the increase in the practice of slavery in Athens and also the very subjugated role of women in both public and private life in Athenian society. So let's talk very quickly, let's just check off a list here of what women could not do in public life and in private life, and what their basic expectations were. So in Athens, women were excluded from most aspects of public life. Women, in Greek or Athenian women, they could not vote, they could not participate in the political assembly, Athenian women could not hold public office, they could not participate directly in politics in any way. And this is significant. This is, a, this is not unusual, of course. As we know in world history, the, this is typical for the role of women in the ancient world history. It's made more kind of significant and painful in the Athenian, classical Athenian example, because at the same time of this exclusion and subjugation, we're seeing this moment where 
the freedom and rights and opportunities of men, regardless of their class or background, was being very much expanded. And so it kind of makes this, this reality a little more sharply visible and painful to understand. So also women in private, they were constantly, constantly under the control of a male guardian, either a father, husband, brother, some other male relative. Women, Athenian women were buried off young, between the ages of 12 to 18, while most Greek husbands, the average age of getting married was around over 30 years old. And so marriages, Greek marriages, were between a much older male and a much younger uh, female. And these marriages resembled more father-daughter relationships that were very kind of financial and politically driven. Marriages were arranged between families. Women, um, the wives had no choice, and the male family members controlled dowries. If a woman wanted a divorce, it had to be approved by one of the woman's or wife's male relatives who pledged that they were willing to serve as the guardian of this woman after the divorce happened. A dowry would be returned if there was a divorce, but it would be controlled by either the father or that guardian who promised to be responsible for this woman. So you see that women are not seen as being either capable of being independent or that it is a good thing to be in, for a woman to be independent. Women are being, quote unquote, being taken care of by the male members of the family, by male members in society. What responsibilities did Athenian women have? They were basically expected to produce a male heir for the household of the husband. And if there was only a female heir, and so if these two people get married and the wife has only female, only has daughters, then one of those, those daughters would be required by law to marry a relative on the father's side to make sure that a male would be produced in the next generation. So the wife was basically seen as a woman who was being lent from one family to another so that the husband's family could produce an heir to continue their family household on. And so the women in families were seen as basically just things that could be lent and were not seen as being useful for one's own family. They're useful in terms of being lent or given in marriage for money, it's a dowry, so that that other family, the husband's family, can benefit. Also in social life, women were sharply segregated from men outside of the family. They were expected to stay home, silent, raise children, cook, weave, manage the household. The only public function of Athenian women were religious festivals. And I mean that quite literally when I said that before. Women respectable Athenian women were expected to remain out of sight and quiet and to not be talked about either positive or negative. So the ideal Athenian woman, uh, even according to Pericles, was to simply be invisible and basically perform the expected function within the family. This is mostly kind of the political and legal view of women. But what's kind of confusing here is that the mythology and the literature and the drama of uh, Athenian Greece 
shows a much a much more expansive view of women. You see these stories where women are either the main characters or they are incredibly powerful and influential and vocal members in these stories. And so it's kind of hard to kind of square those two things together. And it's hard to come up with an explanation. You can think of uh, your explanation or your guess yourself. Uh, but maybe it is that the mythology and the literature and the fiction in the culture of Greece, it was kind of a way of either Greek uh, dramatists and artists to show either why women shouldn't be allowed to have a more powerful role because they may uh, lead to bad things happening, or it could be for some of the writers and dramatists to show kind of a happier utopia, a more just utopia where there can be a world, a Greek world, where women do have more say. Maybe it's a a kind of a subversive, creative way for some people to express that women maybe should have more of a role. Uh, an example of this is the the work by Euripides known as Medea, and she there is a powerful person, a powerful woman who negotiates with kings, uh, but she has a speech even in, in that uh, work by Euripides where she is bemoaning the condition of women in the play itself. And so it's very contradictory, it's very ironic what's going on because the, the, the work is, is named after Medea, she's a central figure, she's very powerful, very vocal, very independent, and yet there's this, this famous speech by her in the play where she's talking about how bad the condition of women is. And so that gives me, that's my interpretation. I think that Euripides as an artist as a writer, was someone who, who thought women should have a stronger role because he made a play about that. And he gave this fictional Medea this speech against the subjugation of women. So it's a very interesting conversation, to say the least. If we want to talk about Pericles, the political leader, he, had, he divorced his wife, and he had a lifelong companion that he never married, and her name was Aspasia. And she was an alien, so she wasn't an Athenian woman. She, wasn't, she was a foreigner. She was very well-educated. Uh, Socrates discussed her in his writing. Uh, they, he did, she didn't mar marry Pericles, but they had this very odd romantic affection. Like, they actually liked each other. This was very odd in, um, in Greek marriages. And it was kind of offensive to in Greek society in general because she was treated with so much equality, and she was participated in discussions, and Pericles, he brought her into the discussions. He invited her to come in and discuss topics when he was uh, in parties or meeting with um, male Athenians. And so the role that she enjoyed, and especially the, the romantic affection that Pericles showed to her was, was basically, in a word, it was just odd. It was very odd and untypical, atypical, I should say. Um, one exception here when we're to finish up talking about the role of women is that poor women had a much more active role outside of the home, uh, in the home, and much more vocal role. And it was out of necessity because uh, they were needed to do these work, they were needed to take on these responsibilities. And so among poor women we see this irony of while they are financially more vulnerable in terms of their social role, uh, they have much more uh, opportunity. 
uh, the wealthier households, more um, affluent families, the women are much more subjugated, controlled, domesticated, if you will. Next topic about classical Greece will be the discussion of slavery. And slavery was generally rare in Greek history until around 500 BCE, and that's beginning in the classical period, and it becomes very significant. Uh, slaves in Greece are mostly war captives and foreigners, and the Greeks, like most other civilizations, they view foreigners as being inferior, inherently inferior. They don't, they don't have the same rights. They don't necessarily have the, there's not this idea of human rights and basic human treatment. So foreigners are most likely to be captives. Uh, Greek slaves would work on various farms that were usually not all in the same place, but if you were a wealthy Greek family, you would have a large a patchwork kind of a farm around the polis territory. It wouldn't all be in the same place. And so slaves would work on various farms of the wealthy, and especially would engage in mining. Uh, slaves could also work as craftsmen, though. They could be shepherds. And the city-states themselves would sometimes own slaves and they would uh, if a city-state owned slaves the slave could work as a policeman or a, a prison attendant or a clerk or a secretary or a teacher the estimates are between in terms of the population of slaves the estimates were between 20 and and uh, the median would be around 60,000 slaves total with no more than a third of households having a slave at all and so we can have that comparison with the society in the American South where a very small minority of Southern families uh, were able to own any of the slaves. So the majority of the slaves are owned by a minority of wealthy uh, Athenians. Also different from the American South, especially in the uh, industrial era, is that in ancient Greece, liberation was common, either as a gift or it could be earned or awarded by the owner or by the state sometimes. And during the Peloponnesian Wars, um, there were several instances where Athens freed all the slaves who served in the military. And some were awarded even citizenship at some point. That wasn't very common, but that, still, that did happen. And that's while slavery was still practiced. Uh, and slavery was never ended entirely, though. Next topic in our discussion of classical Greece, we kind of discussed this before, but we're talking about religion. And again, religion in classical Greece remains kind of the same of what, as what we have discussed before. Religion is, being religious was really more a matter of being, uh, is more civic than a private affair. It's about being patriotic. You should do what you're supposed to in terms of the state religion out of patriotism and being a good citizen not necessarily out of personal faith or being concerned with moral questions. And this, I think, is, makes it very hard for us in the year 2016 to get our minds around because in our culture today, we equate religion with moral questions. And you're religious because uh, you're concerned about the afterlife, you're concerned about morality, you're concerned with what God expects of you. That, but that's not always what religion is always about. And in this ancient Greek culture, the classical Greece, religion is about basically just appeasing the gods so that the gods don't do something bad to your city-state. So you need to be patriotic. You need to do what you need to do uh, out of being a citizen. And so there is this real need. And so 
if this is the motivation where blasphemy was punished by the state. Because the state is worried about natural disasters. The state is worried about plague. The, the city-states are worried about famine and civil war or being invaded or floods or fires, etc. And so if you're blaspheming, if you're in Athens and you make fun of the gods as Socrates did in 399 BCE, that's viewed as being unpatriotic. That's viewed as being against your own city-state. You're viewed as inviting the gods to punish everyone because you don't know how to act right, because you don't know how to just bow your head and honor uh, these gods because they're powerful. Not necessarily because they're good, because they're powerful. So that's what happened with Socrates, and blasphemy was punished severely uh, in, on occasions, on several famous occasions. Moving on, next topic I want us to cover, and we'll be getting close to finishing our discussion of Greece. Uh, next up will be Rome, as a spoiler coming up. The next topic we need to cover is the Great Peloponnesian War. We talked about the first one at the beginning of the episode. Let's go in and talk about the Great Peloponnesian War that ends with the collapse of Athens, the collapse of the Athenian Empire, and the subjugation, uh, the domination by Sparta. In the year 435 BCE, so we're coming, we're getting close to the year zero here. We're getting closer. 435 BCE. That was it. Was during that 30-year peace treaty between Sparta and Athens, a dispute came up that ended up causing civil war and the Greater War in this territory that was very irrelevant, mostly. The city-state was the the. The city-state or colony was Epidamnus, and a civil war got up, and it caused... It was a uh, Corsarian colony. Okay, so before I get, we get confused, uh, so we have Epidamnus, and it is a colony of Corsera. And Corsera was neutral, as in Corsera was not with the Spartans, it also wasn't with the Athenians. But the civil war in this, this far-off place, this remote area, caused a dispute between neutral Corsera and the city-state of Corinth. And Corinth uh, was the a mother city and ally of Sparta. It, it was an ally of Sparta. So that wouldn't necessarily cause a problem for Athens, except that Corsera had the second biggest fleet. And after Athens. And so Athens is worried that if Corsera were to be captured or subjugated by Corinth and or Spartan or the Peloponnesian League, that that would threaten Athenian security. So Athens becomes allied with Corsera. In 432 BCE, the Spartans vote for war. And the peace treaty said from the first Peloponnesian War, the peace treaty said that they were supposed to arbitrate disputes, that they were supposed to agree that if there's anything that's that's they argue about, that it should be arbitrated. And so the leader of Athens, Pericles, he, he says, whatever you want to discuss, we'll arbitrate. But Sparta says, no, we're not going to arbitrate. Sparta invades the territory of Attica, where Athens is. There is at first a stalemate, and then the Spartan strategy, they follow their typical strategy. They want to go in, threaten the crops, and force a hoplite battle. And they would win it because they had better soldiers, better equipped, better trained, and 
they had more of them. They had a two to one advantage over Athens. The Athenian strategy under Pericles was to simply, uh, basically kind of a castle defense. They want to just allow devastation of the countryside and rely on tribute and supplies to come in by sea because they had a fortified city and they had connection uh, they had a connection with a fortified port. Pericles estimated they could last for two to three years and that the Spartans would get uh, disheartened and meanwhile they would launch naval attacks on the Peloponnesian allies of Sparta and get them to kind of push Sparta to give up. Pericles was worried though that he, he guessed that if it went up to five years, Athens would have to raise their tribute tax on their colonies or allies, and that would risk rebellion. So Pericles is hoping that he can wait out the Spartans for two or three years. Unfortunately, in the year 429 BCE, there was a great plague and political division, and Pericles dies, and no leader comes up that can unite everyone, much less around one particular strategy. So there's two factions. You have Nicias, who's wanting to continue Pericles' defense strategy, and against them you have Cleon, who wants to follow a more aggressive strategy. So unfortunately, here Pericles dies, and we have division in Athens. In 425 BCE, the aggressive faction led by Cleon, they defeated 400 Spartans. So this gives some street credibility to the aggressive approach. And Sparta offers a peace truce to get them back, and it allows Athens to raise tribute on their city-states in the Aegean without there being any rebellion, because Athens shows that it can fight. In 424 BCE, there's more. they engage in more aggressive military um, actions and they conquer the city-state of Megara. They try to, but that fails and that totally discredits the aggressive faction with Cleon. In 423 BCE, there's a truce. Sparta captured an important colony and the Athenian naval leader named Thucydides gets blamed and he gets exiled. And it is thanks to that defeat that Thucydides gets time to write his world-famous history of the Great Peloponnesian War. Year 422, Cleon, again Cleon is leader of the aggressive, aggressive faction. He leads an expedition to reclaim that territory, but he dies, along with the aggressive leader, general of Sparta. And so we get this peace of Nicias in 421 BCE. That was supposed to last for 50 years, but no, it doesn't. In 415, Athens gets persuaded by some leading citizen to attack Sicily and try to you know, get some new territory. And so this is seven years after the Peace of Nicias. He, they get persuaded to attack Sicily. It's a disaster. It gets completely destroyed in the year 413. 200 of Athens' ships are lost. 4,500 Athenian soldiers and 40,000 of their allies are lost. And what we see here is to almost total rebellion among the colonies of Athens. And Persia 
comes in and takes sides and starts helping out Sparta. So Persian, they're very clever here. They're going with this divide and conquer strategy. Persia sides with Sparta, try and get them to get rid of Athens. The Athenian allies, they rebel. They also get Persian help. So the Persians are looking here and they see their former rival, the Athenians, who defeated them. And they're helping out Sparta and they're helping out the colonies of Athens who are rebelling. So the finances, finances of Athens shrank. The fleet of Athens was caught and destroyed in the year 405 BCE. And then the Spartans under Lysander, they cut off the Athenian food supply. And the Athenians are starved and diseased into submission. In the year 404 BCE, finally, the city-state of Athens surrenders unconditionally. The city walls of Athens were dismantled. They were not allowed to have any fleet. And the Athenian empire system of tribute with their Aegean colonies is dismantled. So that's the great Peloponnesian War. We saw the height of Athens, the great achievements, and the political downfall of that city-state. We still have more to discuss about classical and Hellenistic Greece. Uh, we will get to Alexander the Great in the next episode. We will get to talking about more of the culture in the 5th century and the 4th century. We'll talk about the great philosophers and thinkers. And we'll talk about the kind of collapse of the polis system, finally. And which will culminate in the domination by Alexander of Macedon conquering the Greek mainland and creating an empire out of these rivalry-obsessed city-states. The last thing before I say uh, goodbye for this episode is that I wanted to go ahead and read something just as a special uh, part here uh, from that great work by Euripides called Medea and where Medea is bemoaning the condition of women. And I'll start here. This is around 431 BCE. It was a play, and it was given at the festival of Dionysus in Athens. So here's that excerpt where Medea is complaining about the role of women in Greek life. She says, Of all things which are living and can form a judgment, we women are the most unfortunate creatures. Firstly, with an excess of wealth, it is required for us to buy a husband and take for our bodies a master. For not to take one is even worse. And now the question is serious whether we take a good or bad one, for there is no easy escape for a woman, nor can she say no to her marriage. She arrives among new modes of behavior and manners and needs prophetic power unless she has learned at home how best to manage him who shares the bed with her. And if we work out all this well and carefully, and the husband lives with us and lightly bears his yoke, then life is enviable. If not, I'd rather die. A man, when he's tired of the company in his home, goes out of the house and puts an end to his boredom and turns to a friend or companion of his own age. But we are forced to keep our eyes on one alone. When they say of us is that we have a peaceful time living at home 
while they do the fighting in war. How wrong they are. I would very much rather stand three times in the front of battle than bear one child. That's from Medea. I hope you enjoyed this. If you like the series, please subscribe on iTunes. You can like us on Facebook at the European History Podcast. My name is Daniel. See you next time.